All right. Good morning, Willow. So good to have you here. I want to say a very special welcome to those of you joining us online and at any of our Willow locations. It is great to have you here as well. Uh, quick side note before we dive in today. This weekend, our senior pastor, Dave Dummett, was supposed to be here uh, delivering the message. He was super excited to be here and to be a part of this weekend. And then yesterday morning, uh, one of his kids was feeling a little bit ill. They went and got a COVID test, and sure enough, it came back positive. And so the rest of the family, out of precaution, just went ahead and did a COVID uh, test as well. And sure enough, Dave also tested positive as of yesterday. So as much as he wanted to be here today, for obvious reasons, he was not able to make it today. Uh, just so you know, he's doing well, very mild symptoms. As soon as he can get back, he's very excited to do so. But in light of that, here we are. And uh, we're going to jump in. And we're going to continue our series we've been in for the last few weeks called Road Trip Radio, anchoring today in Psalm 150, which is the very last psalm in the collection of these songs. Now, if you've been with us for the past few weeks, you know that the psalms really is a collection of songs. It's an ancient hymnal, if you will. Uh, Most would suggest that these are songs that were likely sung in the community to, to kind of remember God's goodness and greatness. But, you know, as I look at the, the, the different genres of the Bible, I kind of scratch my head a little bit of why did God put a book of songs, it's the longest book in the entire Bible, and why did he put it right smack dab in the middle of it? I mean, for me, I understand a lot of the other genres of Scripture. I get all the history books because we got to know what happened. And I get the Proverbs because it's very helpful to know all these wisdom nuggets that help us navigate the various things that we encounter in life. I get the Gospels because they tell us who Jesus is, what he did, what he accomplished, that the promises that we can take to the bank because of what God did for us through Jesus. I get the book of Revelation because it's great to know the victory that has ahead and we can anchor our hope into what's ahead. So I understand all these various genres of scripture, but why is the Psalms the longest book right there in the middle? You could probably call it the hinge of scripture in some perspectives. Why would God put so much attention on songs? Now, I don't know that I fully know, but my hunch is this may have a little something to do with it. There's something about songs that help us remember Uh, For example, we may say, man, I have a hard time memorizing scripture, but I know every lyric of every T. Swift song that there ever has been, right? Because songs have this ability to be memorable. We can remember the lyrics of songs. Uh, uh, Companies know this. So a lot of times when they're releasing products, they'll have a little jingle that's associated with it because you can't get the jingle out of your head and you can remember the products, right? And so how about this? I'm going to sing a little bit of the jingle. And this is a risk for me because I don't sing very well. I sing around my house. My kids tell me to stop because their ears are bleeding. But I'm going to sing a little bit of a jingle, and I need you to finish the jingle. You can't say it. you got to sing it. Okay? You ready? Don't leave me hanging. All right. So here's the first one. The best part of waking up. Man, you're brilliant. Sounds great. Sounds great. Okay, here's the second one. Give me a break. Give me a break. Break me off a piece of that. Man, brilliant. You just sound amazing. Uh, Just so you know. Here's the last one. And like a good neighbor. That was a little out of pitch for me. Sorry about that. But you're with me, right? Uh, There's something about these little jingles. They just help us remember things. 
And so I just wonder if part of the reason why God included the book of Psalms, and it's as many songs as it is, is it helps us remember. It helps us remember the, the goodness, the majesty, the power, all the things that God has been and God has done. There are things that we need to remember, and sometimes when we commit it to song, we actually commit it to memory. There's something about songs that also stir something within us. Uh, Many times it's songs that will inspire us, they will encourage us, they will unite us, they will motivate us. It's songs that that give us the energy we need to overcome obstacles. I mean, songs can be incredibly powerful. I think about when I I run marathons, I I like to to run, and, and one of the things that I do when I'm preparing for a marathon is I put together a playlist. And what's interesting is I know what my body's going to feel like at different parts of a race, and so I choose different types of songs for whatever I need in that moment. And so generally, like out of the gates, I'll choose something that's got an up-tempo, good beat, kind of gets me excited, motivated, gets that adrenaline, you know, rolling out of the gates. Usually when I get to like mile five or six, I need it to slow down. I need my heart rate to slow down. Uh, I really need something that, that kind of is, is much more, uh, uh, you know, soft in nature. Sometimes I'll even throw a classical song or two in the middle. It just kind of slows me down. But then when mile 20 hits... Uh, think like the wheels are coming off people like things are not good at that moment and so what I do uh, you can judge me if you want and I'm okay with it uh, I turn on some like 90s heavy metal that's really what gets me going in those moments I need a little Metallica in those moments it's what it's what pushes me it's, I got somebody who's with me right it's what pushes me, right? It helps me overcome those types of things. And music has a way of doing that. It can lift us. It can move us. It can unite us. It can motivate us. There's something so powerful about songs. What's interesting is the, the Psalms are not the only place in the Bible that you read songs. Uh, Miriam, back in the book of Exodus, she sings a beautiful song. Uh, there are some women that once David and Saul return from battle, they sing songs. You, you turn to the book of Revelation. And you see around the throne room are all kinds of songs, these worship songs. Now, I've read the book of Revelation a lot of times. I've never seen anything about preaching in the book of Revelation, which means someday I'm going to be out of a job, but the band, they're still good to go, right? There's just something about songs. They, they carry us, they encourage us, they inspire us, they motivate us. And I think Psalm 150 is one of those psalms. So if you've got a Bible, you can go to Psalm 150. It's the very last psalm. If you'd like to look it up on your Bible app on a device, you can certainly do that, or the words will also show up on the scripture. But here's the words that are recorded for us in Psalm 150. It says this. It says, praise the Lord. Praise God in the sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his acts of power. Praise him for his surpassing greatness. Praise him with the, res- uh, the sounding of the trumpet. Praise him with the harp and the lyre. Praising with the tambourine and dancing, praising with, with the strings and the flute, praising with the clash of cymbals, praising with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. That's the whole psalm. Six verses. And every single word in Psalm 150 helps shape our understanding of worship and really what worship is and why it's so important in, in our own hearts and our own souls. If you like me to, if you allow me to, I don't know if you'll like me to or not, but if you allow me to, uh, I want to just walk through Psalm 150 in reverse order, starting at verse 6 and working our way backward. And we're going to look at worship through a couple lens as far as the who, the how, the why, and the where of worship as the psalmist helps us see in Psalm 150. So again, we'll start at Psalm 
150, verse 6, and really start wrestling with the question of the who. I mean, who are the people that should praise God? Here's what it says, Psalm 150, verse 6, it says this, Let everything that has breath praise the on cue. Praise the Lord, right? Let everything that has breath. And so basically what the psalmist is saying is, it doesn't matter who you are. Every person that has ever been created of all times, of all nations, of all countries, of all ethnicities, every single one of us was designed to worship. Now, I think it would be helpful for us to really expand our understanding of worship. I would argue that every single person was created to worship. And you're actually really good at it. Uh, All of us are worshipers. So really quickly, turn to somebody near you and say, you are a worshiper. Really quickly, turn to them again and say, and you're really, really good at it. And I think that's true. Now you may go, Sean, that's not true. I even roll up on Sunday mornings. I don't sing when everybody else sings. And so I want to expand our understanding of worship. It's not just the songs that we sing on Sunday morning. I think worship is much, much greater than that. I think the best way to look at it is this. We were created to declare the ultimate worth and ultimate value of something. And fundamentally, that's actually what worship is. Worship is our response to that which we value most. And you and I, whether we're spiritual people or not, whether we're faith-filled people or not, we all worship something. Uh, We worship potentially a a possession, or we worship a dream. We worship a person, a relationship, a set of friends. Uh, We we worship success or some sort of accolades. We worship a sports team or maybe one of the athletes that plays on the team. But no matter who you are or where you've been or what your background's like, every single person that has ever walked the face of the earth, you're a worshiper. We all declare the ultimate worth of something. The question really is, Who or what do you worship? What is your life declaring the ultimate worth of? We're all worshiping something. Now really we fundamentally have a choice. Are we going to worship that which is eternal or are we going to worship that which is temporary? Are we going to worship the creator of all things or are we going to worship some sort of created thing? And so Romans kind of warns us of this dichotomy. And in the book of Romans, Paul writes this, and he says these words. He says, there are some people who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and and worshiped and, and, and served created things rather than the creator of the things. And it's really easy to do. But the question becomes for all of us, like, what is what is our life declaring as ultimate? What is our life declaring as of of most value? If it is anything other than the creator of all things, we'll feel this disconnect. We'll feel a a sense of emptiness. Something in life will feel missing because you were created to worship. I mean, I could introduce you to a, a single person whose deepest longing of their heart and desire is that one day they would meet that very special someone and that one day they, they could get married and that, that, that they're convinced that if that happened in life, that then, then they'll be fulfilled. Now, don't get me wrong. That's a perfectly fine aspiration. That's, that's even a really good thing. It's just not an ultimate thing. And I, and I hope that plays out for you if you're in that particular situation. That's something that you long for. I pray that you do find that special someone. I pray that you do have two and a half kids, live in a house with a white picket fence. I hope the whole thing is great for you. It's a good thing. It's just not an ultimate thing. 
And so even if we receive that in life, if it's the ultimate thing in life, I promise you it will not fully deliver. There will still feel like there's something missing. There's a disconnect. I wasn't quite fully fulfilled. I mean, I could introduce you to someone else who's been a highly successful business person. Uh, They've made millions, lost millions, now making millions again. And they are highly successful, achieved incredible things. And again, that's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with that. For some of us, we're also business people, and, and, and that's something that we care a lot about, something we pursue, and it gives a good thing. I, I pray that God does bless your work. I pray that you do accomplish all that you're setting out to do. I pray that you get to experience the benefit from all of it. It is a good thing. It's just not an ultimate thing. And if we ever see it as an ultimate thing that we draw our value and our worth based on what we have or what we've done, I promise there will never be enough. There will always feel like something's not quite right, that our greatest success feels like it didn't give us what we hoped that it would give us. And we're still left feeling a little bit empty, that that it it didn't fully deliver. So the question becomes, what is ultimate in your life? I mean, if there was a trail of your life and we followed your time, your energy, your resources, the things that you pursued and dreamed about, at the end of that trail likely is what your life is worshiping. The question becomes, what is that? What is the thing or or the person or the, the someone that your life is declaring of ultimate worth? And then the second question becomes, is it worth it? Like, is it ultimate? Does it, does it matter most? Because if it doesn't matter most, but gets all of our affection, we'll be left feeling like this, this disconnect exists. And the reason that is, is the writer of Ecclesiastes helps us understand this truth. It says that God has set eternity in the hearts of men. Now, when it says men, it's not talking about just the guys in the room. Uh, it says that the God has set eternity in the hearts of all people. That's true for all of us, that, that, that God has hardwired us to fix our hearts on that which is eternal. We were created to worship. Now again, the psalmist writes, let everything that has breath praise. That is a true statement. But the psalmist doesn't stop there. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Because when he is the object of our affection, when he is ultimate in our life, it is only then that the deepest longings of our souls gets quenched. That when you get to discover the, the power, the majesty, the unconditional love, the wisdom that helps us navigate things in life, when you understand him as ultimate, there's nothing else that compares. That we leave everything else behind in order to worship him. As the psalmist wants to make sure that we're very clear about the who it is that we worship. But I think we can also really lean into the how. Like, like how should we Praise God. Let's go back to Psalm 150. It says this. It says, it says, praise him with the sound of a trumpet. Praise him with a harp and a lyre. Praise him with a tambourine and dancing. Praise him with, with strings and a flute. Praise him with the clash of his cymbals. Praise him with, the, with, with resounding cymbals. Basically, he's just thinking about everything that you can possibly make noise with and say, use that to praise God. If you got a trumpet, play it. If you got a cymbal, crash it. If you've got an accordion, I don't know why you would but own it and just go with it, right? Basically saying, I want you to use everything at your disposal in order to praise God. And it's not just the musical instruments. 
You notice he said something about dancing. It's not just a vocal thing, it's a physical thing. And I would even say it's even beyond that. I would say worship is not just a physical thing or a musical thing. It is an emotional thing. It is a spiritual thing. It, is, it encompasses all of who we are. So how do we do that in a practical way? I mean, outside of what we do on a Sunday morning, I mean, does that mean I'm supposed to uh, you know, get at a checkout line at, at Target, and as I'm about to check out, that I'm raising my hands, that I'm singing? and do that kind of, I mean, you can do that. People will think you're really weird, and so I wouldn't encourage it to my closest friends, right? So, so what does it really look like outside of a Sunday morning in order to, to worship God with everything that we are physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally? How do we worship God with everything that we are? I, I think the best way I know how to understand it is I, I think about it in this way. Uh, here's a small little mirror. How many of you own some form of a mirror? Okay, like three of you are raising your hand, but more of you, I think, own a mirror than that. How many of you looked in, uh, in a mirror this morning at some point? Okay, most of us, right? And why do we look in a mirror? Uh, we look at, well, hey, probably should have spent a few more moments in front of the mirror this morning. But you know, why do we look in front of a mirror? It's because we want to make sure that whatever we see is what we want to reflect in the world, Right? And so we may spend 30 minutes, an hour. In my case, I spent like three minutes. Should have spent a lot more time. But, but we spend as much time as we possibly can, right? Because we want to make sure that what people see is what we want them to see. That we're reflecting what we want the world to see. Now, I think that in many ways, our souls are designed that way. I would say we have mirrored souls. In other words, we will, with our lives, reflect whatever it is we worship. So what we talked about before, whatever's at the end of that trail, whatever it is that we're declaring is utmost value in our lives, whatever that thing is, that is what our life will reflect in the world. It doesn't matter what we say, it matters how we live that will be the true declaration of what we ultimately worship. So let me, let me think about it this way. Uh, sir, I don't know, we've, we've met before, but tell me your name. This is John, everybody. Everybody give it up for John. Now, on my other side, this is Jeff, and Jeff and I do know each other because Jeff and I get to serve together. So uh, here we got Jeff and we got John. Now, John and I, I don't know if you know this, but we actually just met, but we're best friends in the entire world, right? And so what if this? Uh, what if I were to like, talk about like, my, the, mirror, the, the reflection of my life is pointed toward John? But what I say is, man, Jeff, he's one cool dude. I mean, I... There is nobody on planet Earth I would rather be more like than Jeff. I mean, he's a, he's a stud. He's, he's amazing. He's, he, he's, just, he's just the person that I care most about. Now, if I were to say that about Jeff, but my heart, my, the reflection of my life, is basically saying that all these things I'm saying about Jeff are actually true about John. That makes some sense? And many times we can do the same thing when it comes to our spiritual perspective, that we can say, God, you're number one. Jesus, I love you most. Man, I care a lot about going to church, but our life will send off a very different message. Worship is not just about the songs we sing. Worship is all about the life we choose to live. And when we live our life, it has to be connected. To, it, it, well, it will be connected to whatever it is that we value the most. When we value God the most, when he truly is ultimate, our lives begin to be transformed in such a way that people can see the goodness of God when they look at us. It is, becomes the reflection that people see. 
Uh, God said that you were created in his image. You were created to be a reflection of his heart in the world. In many ways, every choice we make every day gives us an opportunity to worship. A chance to have congruency between what we say and how we live. Uh, Corinthians says it this way. Paul's writing and, and he says this. He says, and we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory. That's kind of what we're talking about. We're we're being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And so basically what Paul is saying is this, is that the more and more we allow God to be on the throne of our hearts, the more and more that we proclaim his as ultimate, the more we become transformed by his goodness and character. And the more we become transformed by his goodness and character, the more we reflect that into the world. That the world may see God's goodness, his grace, his mercy, his unconditional love, his sacrificial heart, his servant attitude. May may, may the world see God through you. When they do, it's worship. It's kind of the who about worship. It's, It's about the how we go about it. But I think it's really important for us to understand the why. Why, why does worship really matter? Let's, let's go back to Psalm 150. Here's what it says in verse 2. It says this. It says, praise him for his acts of power. Praise him for his surpassing greatness. And so basically what the psalmist is helping us understand is when we take a look back, we can see all the amazing things that God has done. And it gives us the, the reason, the why, in order to worship him. Now, I think that there's this fascinating connection between Psalm 150, which is the last psalm, and Psalm 1, which is obviously the first psalm. It's interesting that that the psalms bookend in the way they do. Let me take us to the first psalm. Here's what it says. Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2 says this. It says, blessed is the man. And again, that's not just our male counterparts. That's blessed are people. Blessed are people whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, they meditate day and night. So what's interesting is Psalm 1 starts with study. Psalm 150 ends in worship. And there's an incredible connection. Because the more you study, meaning the more you know about God, what God has done, all the things that he's accomplished, the more you know about his power, the more you know about the miracles that he has accomplished, the more I begin to experience it in my own life, the more my life responds in worship. God is the God who parted a Red Sea and allowed his people to walk upon dry ground. It was God who created mountains out of the dust. It was a God who spun tens of thousands of galaxies away in our universe. It was a God who ignited the sun. It was a God who came in Jesus and walked on water and made blind people see and lame people walk. It was a God who rolled a a a stone away from a tomb. And Jesus brought resurrection out of death. I mean, this is the same God who's still at work in your life and in my life, and if we begin to understand that, it gives us this place that we live in reverent awe of who he has been and who he continues to be and promises will always be. That's who God is. And it causes us to worship. Now think about you know, really what it means to to live in awe of God. It kind of got me thinking about my growing up years. I I grew up in the 80s. And so growing up in the 80s, man, is we did a lot of Rubik's Cube playing and a lot of Dukes of Hazzard watching. That's kind of my growing up years, right? And you think about every generation makes some sort of contribution to the broader culture. And I think about our generation's contribution to the culture was likely parachute pants, 
leggings, and women's bangs that were hairsprayed up to here. Like, we're really, really proud of our contribution to culture, right? But one of the things that I feel like our generation really messed up is our use of the word awesome. In the 80s, everything was awesome. It was like, man, that Tony Hawk skateboard, that's awesome. Or that tie-dyed t-shirt, that's awesome. Or that MC Hammer video, that's awesome, right? And I mean, everything was awesome. There's a piece of me that I wish we would have reserved those words for fear-trembled lips that really, truly only God is awesome. Only God is the one who is truly worthy to be praised. God is the only one who's majestic, worthy of glory, the one who truly should be praised. That is, our God. He, is he is awesome. Uh, kind of reminds me of this. Uh, I've got a really good friend who owns a, a, a company in the local area. Uh, his company's all about microscopy, meaning they can look and analyze anything under a microscope. There's this whole data analysis division. They, they look at some incredible stuff. So he's done some like top secret government cases. He's done some really high profile court cases. It was his company that took some of the pieces of the Challenger that exploded, analyzed them, and tried to determine the cause of that particular accident. They've looked at some really cool things. And as you would imagine, with a company like this, he's got some very high-powered microscopes, some of the most high-powered microscopes you can find in the world, you can find in his office. And so he's taking me through a tour. It's, it's really cool. There's one room you go into that there's this uh, uh, microscope that's about the size of the room. It's really impressive. Now, he's done a lot of cool things and analyzed a lot of amazing things, but I would argue his greatest work happened in November of 2016. It was shortly after one of what I would say one of the greatest days in human history. Uh, November the 2nd, 2016, on a Wednesday night, rainy night in Cleveland, the greatest baseball game that ever has been played was played. And like four of you are with me because we've just experienced a very hard season. So let's have the moment of silence for the fire sale that just took place. And let's take us back to that moment. What a moment, right? When the Cubs finally, after 108 years, finally won the World Series. It's a lifelong Cubs fan. Many of you are lifelong Cubs fans. It was a moment. I know we got a few boos. You White Sox fans, you got a better team. You're going to win another one soon. But that was a moment for us, right? We don't have any moments coming up soon. So that was a moment for us. And I, and I think back to that moment. I'm a married man with two kids. I love my family, but I'm telling you, November the 2nd, 2016 was one of the greatest days of my entire life. It was, it was, just, a, it was just amazing. Now, if you remember the game, game seven, you remember the final out was recorded when Chris Bryant fielded the ground or threw it across the diamond to, to Anthony Rizzo, and they finally sealed their first World Series in 108 years, and all God's people said amen. It was an amazing moment. Now, shortly after that game, uh, there was a collector in the Chicagoland area that bought the game-worn cleat of Chris Bryant. Here's the picture of him. And he took that cleat, he gave it to my buddy, and he asked that he would analyze the dirt on the bottom of that cleat. Why somebody would do that? I have no idea. But I would call it the single greatest, most important thing that my friend has done in his company was analyze the dirt on the bottom of Chris Bryant's cleat. And what they found is amazing. When they looked at this dirt, they, they analyzed it, and they zoomed in at 108 times, the number of years it had been since the Cubs had won the World Series. Here's the image that they saw. Can you see the bare face, the two eyes, the nose? 
It's the Bears logo hidden at 108 times in the dirt on Chris Bryant's shoes. You don't believe me yet? Well, you can zoom in to 1,870 times the year that the Chicago Cubs franchise was established, and here's what you find. Do you see the C? It's the Cubby C at 1,870 magnification. So this proves two things. One, there was divine intervention for the Cubs to win a World Series. And it proves the second thing that, that God actually is a Cubs fan. I don't know if you knew that, but it, it, kind, of, it kind of proves that. Now, I don't really know how to take really all of what I just said, but here's what I do know. That as I talk to my buddy who has done a lot of work in microscopy and has, has analyzed all kinds of things at incredible magnification, here's what I know. The more you start magnifying things, the more you lose sight of everything else around it. It's impossible not to. The more you magnify something, you focus on it so much so that you lose sight of everything else. And so many of us, myself included, we can walk through life. Life gets tough. It gets incredibly challenging. And if I'm not careful, I will focus so much on it that I magnify my problems and unintentionally, I lose sight of God. I don't mean to. That wasn't my intent. But the more I magnify something, the more I lose sight on everything else. And that's why worship becomes so important because it causes us to refocus our lives. If we can refocus and magnify Christ, if we can magnify God. In many ways, we lose sight of other things that once looked so big, but they're not as big as the bigness of our great God. Now, let me be careful because I don't want to minimize the pain, the hardship, the struggles that maybe many of you are navigating literally in this moment. I don't want to I don't want to minimize or underestimate the, the challenge, the burden, the heaviness that's associated with it. I know some of you are carrying things that I can't even begin to fully understand. But all I'm saying is this, is that we should always take these things to God and we should tell God how big our problems are. But I think there are other times that we need to take a look at our problems and we need to tell our problems how big our God is. And the God who has done it, he can do it again. And he's worthy of our worship. And so there's the who. There's the how. There's the why. And the psalmist also wants us to know the where of worship. I mean, where where should we praise God? Here's how Psalm 150 starts. It says, praise God in the sanctuary. It says, praise him in the mighty heavens. So basically saying, the sanctuary is the things on earth. We should praise him. And when it comes to the places in heaven, there's, it's a place that we should praise him. So basically what the psalmist is saying, hey, just praise God everywhere. That there shouldn't ever be a place that you ever go that's not a place that you can't praise God. That God can be praised at any moment, at any time, in any place, at any location. God is a God to be praised, Right? And so really, God can be praised everywhere. In many ways, there's a reflection of what happens in heaven in the praise of God and what happens down here as, as he is praised as well. And so praise can happen in a living room. It can happen in a bedroom. It can happen in a dorm room. It can happen in a boardroom. It can happen in a backyard. It doesn't matter where we're at. Worship is not confined to this room on a Sunday morning. God is a God that can be praised at all times in all places. 
It was years ago. But a very good friend of mine committed an incredibly heinous crime. And I, I won't go into all the details, but I actually found out about it when I read the headline that came across social media on a Monday morning. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe as I read what he had done, I couldn't believe that this man that I knew and loved was responsible for such a heinous crime, but he was obviously arrested, and rightly so, and he was now being held at the, the local jail. And so because I'm a pastor, I knew I could get into scene. As I remember rolling up to the jail that, that very first time, and, and I remember them bringing him out of, at the time he was being held in solitary confinement on suicide watch, and they bring him and they put him in front of me, you know, separated by a glass and talking through a phone. And I'll tell you, I've never been in the presence of somebody who was struggling with darkness in the way I was in that moment. Unlike anything I'd ever experienced. He, he couldn't say much. He couldn't pick his head up. He couldn't look me in the eye. And so I did most of the talking that very first time, and I just reminded him of a God who still loved him, and a God who hadn't forgotten him, and a God who was still committed to him, that his, his story was not done, that his life did not have to be defined by his worst mistake, that his life could still be defined by God's greatest work on his behalf. And I told him that God loved him and that God was committed to him because that was God's posturing. That will be my posture as well. And I committed to him that very first time that I'd come back to see him. And I did every week for almost two years. We had lots of conversations over two years. Some were great. Some were not as great. But over the course of time, slowly but surely, and it was slowly, slowly but surely, God began to reclaim his heart. It was a beautiful, beautiful thing to watch. But I remember I'd probably been there, I don't know how long it had been, six, seven, eight months. And I walked in like I always did. They sat him down like they always do, separated by the glass like we always were, and we both picked up the phone by which we would communicate to one another. And before I even got the words out of my mouth, how are you doing? He interjected and he said, Sean, can we just sing like, bro, you've got the wrong person for this job. It's like, what do you want to sing? So let's sing church songs. I, I just miss it. Can we just sing church songs? I said, sure, what do you want to sing? He said, there's this song that I remember in the, in the title, it has hallelujah. Like, raise a hallelujah. Can we sing that song? I don't think I sang a lyric on key. I don't think he sang a lyric on key. My friends, it was a holy moment. But I'm going to sing in the middle of the storm. Louder and louder, I'm going to hear my praises roar up from the ashes. Hope will arise. Death is defeated because the king is alive. And we sang together, and we cried together, and we sang some more together. Where do you worship? You can worship anywhere. 
that hospital room, it can be a sanctuary. That intense boardroom, it can be a place of praise. That counselor's office, it's a place of worship. That jail cell, my friends, it can be holy ground. Your life will declare the ultimate worth of something or someone. Don't let your life settle for something other than the only one who rightfully deserves to sit on the throne of our hearts. Don't settle for something mediocre that that your life will be in disconnect. You'll feel like something's missing. Something will quite feel somewhat empty. Make sure you point your affections toward the only one who's worthy of our praise and adoration. When we give him everything we are, it's amazing that some of our deepest longings, our deepest desires find themselves met in him. That if we can focus on him, it's not that everything else goes away, but it's refocused when he becomes magnified. Worship him. In all times, in all places, with everything you've got, bring your worship to him. God, that's our prayer. Is God, that we would be people as difficult as it is to push aside the temporary and allow us to worship that which is eternal. God, that we would push aside the created things that beg for our affection, we'd put them aside We worship the creator of all things. God, we don't always get it right. And candidly, so often I displace you from your rightful spot on the throne of my heart. And I put something there that doesn't even make sense. But God, in this moment, would you recenter us? Would you call us to your presence? Would you lift us, encourage us, move us? Inspire us. God, we believe you're worthy. The only one who is worthy, we pray that in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.